Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. Today is the first half of a two-parter. In this conversation, we're going to discuss the different concerns in creating and playing and running one-shot games and longer games. The idea here being that there are a couple of places where the needs of the story are different, and in a few cases, the system needs some tweaking to feel right. Yeah, that's definitely something I've run into running Changeling one-shots especially C20, is designed for Chronicles. And it is very clear to me that it is designed for Chronicles. I've done a few one-shots of it, and it's not bad for one-shots. It's just several of the dynamics of the game kind of end up feeling vestigial. We should probably start with the things that are in common between the two design styles, the, the two play styles, the two... The two lengths of the game, in all cases, you need to sit down, preferably with your players, but not always, and decide what kind of a story you're going to tell. I find, especially with one-shots, this is harder to do. A lot of one-shots are run at conventions, and you have to have everything planned out and designed before you even potentially meet your players. So, in that respect... You just have to kind of go for it. I have one scenario that I've run at two different conventions. I ran it at ValorCon and at Gen Con this last year. Totally different set of players. They engaged with the themes in completely different ways. And the first time around, and I, I thought it would just be kind of a funsies 1925 red cap gangster rhapsody conspiracy shenanigans. Again, because con game in one shot. But I ended up kind of getting into X-Card territory. I I did the whole, like, sleazy gangster thing, and I had a, a female player, and immediately she started reacting poorly. She didn't ask for blackout, but I didn't. I don't know if she was comfortable doing that. And I went, nope, we're pulling away from this immediately. So, you know, even if you're running with your friends, a lot of times one-shots are, uh, what are we doing tonight? I don't want to get out of board game. Let's do a role-playing game. Can we be ready to run a role-playing game in 30 minutes? Let's do this thing. There isn't really time for negotiation. It's a little bit easier with your friends, but, you know, sometimes you have that one extra plus one person there, and the same dynamics could show up. I feel like you have to be much more aware of that with a one-shot game, because the likelihood that you've invested the planning time to avoid those scenarios is lower in kind of all places. Right, and you end up having to referee a little bit between the players more especially in unknown players territory but even in just a general one shot because you'll end up with players making characters who have no reason to be in the same room let alone helping each other that is absolutely true one thing that simon and i have talked about a little bit as new c20 books are coming out we're looking at them and being like should we talk about this book is this would this be worth an episode? And the ready-made characters book dropped. And we both looked at it, and we were both kind of like, ah, uh, ah, uh, I don't know, man, because it didn't totally make sense to the two of us. But ready-made characters is, it's a resource for grab-and-go game artifacts, and we tend to build everything from the ground up. I spend way more time in historic, wikipedia articles than i spend in game books when i'm planning a chronicle um and i'm pretty sure simon is the same 
But the one thing that ready-made characters does have that can mitigate some of what Simon just talked about, characters that have nothing to do with each other, you have these templates, and they're real characters. They're not kind of the broad archetypes you used to get. But then at the back of the book, they'll be like, I forget how many there are in the Changeling ready-made characters book. I want to say at least five, maybe six different configurations of characters. They have pre-made motleys. And they'll describe the relationships between each of the members. So you have the basic character write-ups, and then you can say, all right, we're going to do one shot with this motley. Everyone decide which character from this motley you want. Don't just read your backstory. Read the relationships you have with the other motley members, and it very rapidly gives you a baseline. Even for one shot, I, I have to admit, I probably wouldn't use it, but it can be a really great tool to kind of get started there. I remember one one shot I ran with the old templates that it was like a Sabbat game. And we were like, roll a die, see which Sabbat template you get. And it was a wreck. We had no reason to interact with each other. We didn't know who our characters were. Again, I don't know if I'd run it, but it is an interesting artifact they've put into the 20th anniversary games and a resource that didn't used to be available. And even if you end up not using those characters it does provide you a sort of example of how to build a group especially if you're doing a one-shot you might be writing the characters as the storyteller too yeah that is very true and if you are doing a one-shot and you're building everything so like if you're doing a con game at a local con and you want to build all those relationships out front i think it's a really great model to go to. The other thing that's nice, if say you want to do a one shot and everyone does want to make their own characters, but maybe they've they haven't played Changeling since C20 came out. In my current chronicle, when I had everyone make their characters, they all looked at me and went, What do I do for my antithesis? And I, I hadn't thought about that being a problem. Antithesis makes a lot of sense to me. But then I had to stop and get like inside the head of five different characters in one character creation session. And antithesis is kind of intimate. And I was like, well, let me look up some examples. Ready-made characters hadn't come out yet. I grabbed the quick start because it has like five ready-mades in the back. None of them have antithesis. And I think they don't have it to give the player the opportunity to choose that intimate thing about them themselves. But still, I didn't have examples to give them aside from the one character creation write-up in the core book, which is not I mean, it's an example, but they needed a broader scope. So for me, the one thing I do really like having at hand for new players is here are like 12 antithesis examples. It'll give you an idea of like the neighborhood you need to work in. So when you're thinking about setting up a one shot, the concern for, well, for me, most of the time is what is bringing all these different people together because a lot of people for one-shots end up playing ideas they wouldn't normally do for a longer game that they think might be kind of fun, but they wouldn't actually want to play for a long period. So they tend toward either extremes or antisocial behaviors. And one of the other ways you can sort of put a lasso around your players and force them to work together is to come up with a social environment that they're in so you're not necessarily saying hey all of you have the same sister or you all have the same job or whatever but you are saying hey so three of you took freehold as a background but none of you took very much let's pool that 
And that can give you some ideas for what your story hooks are going to be too. Yeah, and that does also bring up talking about artifacts that can be available. The Book of Freeholds recently dropped. I don't think Simon or I are done reading it, but it has some example freeholds in the back. And, you know, sitting down and kind of looking at those as a starting point, I don't know that you'd want to take one entirely, could be really helpful. Having a common freehold, having a common resource does a lot to rapidly bring players together and align their motivations. Even if you said, okay, you guys are going to make your characters, and while you're making your characters, I'm going to throw this story together for this one shot we're doing. If you can all pick a general aesthetic, I'm going to design the freehold, but I'll design it off what you have in mind. Jumping in and giving the characters a few of the really critical abilities, freehold powers, and maybe even giving them access to different powers, maybe the freehold has different relationships with each of them, can add a lot of really quick accelerated dynamism that can make the game feel richer than a one-shot would normally come out feeling. Uh, The one-shots I've played, especially the quick one-shots with friends, tend to end up feeling a little flat, and so some of those things can flesh them out very quickly. Or just making sure they all hate the she. That's the way the one shot I ran. Well, okay. (laughs) Oh, God, that's so true. (laughs) You had some time to plan. You knew you were going to run that one shot, and we were all commoners, and we did all hate the she. (laughs) I had six hours to plan. Okay, okay. To be fair, you knew you were going to run that one shot a few weeks before you actually ran that one shot. You may have gotten around to planning it six hours before, but... So they come back. The bright she with their noblesse oblige and the dark she with their nightmares come back. They come back with their old ways. Seal the authority and tyranny and patronage. Unseal it darkness and fear and nightmare. And they bring mists in with them in a way the world hasn't seen in ages. Maybe it wasn't on purpose. Maybe it was just clinging to them the way the cold hovers around someone brought in from the winter. The mist wash over all the changelings and blew away all the work and suffering we did making ourselves into ourselves. Not all at once like, and not at the same speed for everyone. The resurgence war was fought by those who weren't overwhelmed immediately by the She's return. But even those who lost, even those who didn't or couldn't fight, we all changed. Our kiths pushed harder than they did before. Our legacies pulled us into being back up in the she's stories like the tide pulled up by the moon you want to know why brownie it's all alone out here that's why that's why my friends are all galane and mortals that's why you court fay don't know i'm out here that's why i spit on kissane courts and parliaments and all that ancient frippery dressed up in modernist drag placate the plebes We got on fine without any of that crap for hundreds of years. 
My last self built this house, and I'll be damned if a single she claims domain over Sarah's memory. Her life is mine to remember, and honor, and mourn. I spent more lives than even I can remember, building myself, by myself, and for myself. Let them hole up and die in their freeholds and gilded courts, but I'll eat cold iron before they take who I am from me. Oh, your cup's empty. Would you like some more tea? Or maybe something stronger? You look a bit in the vapors, friend. With a one-shot, you often have the somewhat unique ability as a storyteller to say, Hey, everybody, we're starting with 100 XP. We're not going to run this game very long, so you're not going to have a whole lot of character development going on anyway. So let's start out with ridiculous power levels. Or you can start with covering an awful lot of ground in all in one night and start with beginning player characters and then just throw XP at them at chapter breaks throughout the night. Both of which allow you to give players a little bit more wish fulfillment than they would normally get. Yes, that is very true. Starting characters in pretty much every role-playing game I've ever played are not designed to be fun. They are designed to give you a chance to learn the system. I almost feel like when I play D&D now and I start at first level, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get it. But let's be honest, why are we here? You know, and with World of Darkness, it's a little bit better because at least you can start, especially with something like changeling that doesn't have affinity powers you can start with maybe arts you've never used before but with a one shot eh like eh, 15 freebies doesn't get you very far and you're not going to get to develop starting with 15 freebies and nothing else but your base stat isn't that bad as a starting point for a year two year three year chronicle even a six month chronicle but if you just have this one night you want to have something to work with I think it makes a lot of sense to give out experience. I will say, when I've done one-shots, just I'd get rid of freebies altogether. The whole dynamic of, like, the freebie points spend one way and experience spends another way has always, for me, been one of the crunchy problems with the World of Darkness. If you're going to do a one-shot and you're going to start at a higher power level... I would really just say, nobody take freebies, here's your 100 experience, go from there. Because otherwise, you open up the door to a lot of weird min-maxing, which, you know, everybody's trying to make their characters really quickly. And if you do introduce a higher power level, you've just added time to character creation anyway, so sweeping that away, I think, is a big advantage. You have a little bit less of the, ugh, I'm a starting player character thing going on with Changeling, primarily because of... The really weird ways the arts and the realms interact with each other, and now the way unleashing kind of gives you the ability to take control away from the storyteller every once in a while. But yeah, you you still run into a lot of, oh, if only I had those other three dots in security or something. Yeah, the other thing I would say, and I tend to do this in longer form games in the first three, four sessions anyway, if I have new players, is if someone says, oh, 
purchasing this ended up being really stupid halfway through a one-shot session, let them respend those points. Like, it's a one-shot. You're just having fun. Don't worry about it. You know, if you have a lot of super experienced players, maybe don't open up that complexity. But I feel like if anyone is even a little bit inexperienced, just be forgiving and give flexibility. Everyone will have more fun during the session. One of the places that the game itself kind of comes undone in one shot is both of the, um, air quotes here, morality traits in Changeling, Nightmare, and Banality don't have a whole lot of teeth in a one-shot game. Yeah, that is absolutely true, especially Nightmare's relationship to Unleashing. You know, you start Changeling with no Nightmare, but your character exists on a perpetual sort of cycle of nightmare building, nightmare building, nightmare building, nightmare building. Oh, I have a bedlam adjustment. I need to do something about that. And if you think about it, the the default starting point for changeling players at the beginning of a chronicle of everyone having no bedlam adjusted willpower and no one having any nightmare isn't actually a thing that is likely to ever happen at any point in time in any Motley's life. It's just not realistic. From the standpoint of I'm starting a chronicle, okay, fine, we start at this awkward place because we're entering a chronicle, and we're not going to be there for very long anyway. You're all going to start accumulating at different rates. It's fine. But with a one-shot at the most basic level, give everyone some nightmare. The first time I ran the C20 system, and it was just based on the little bit that they leaked during the Kickstarter, I ran it at ValorCon a couple years ago, I didn't automatically give people Nightmare. And the unleashing system didn't work properly, and nothing felt high stakes, and we had a fun game, but it just, a lot of the dynamics just didn't work at all. When I ran that same scenario at Gen Con last year, I just did a basic, everybody starts with four Nightmare. I mean, it's a one-shot, it's a con game, I didn't want everyone, I didn't want anyone to feel like they'd been seriously disadvantaged, so I did make it the same level, Again, not realistic, but kind of fair. Just having that three or four starting Nightmare, so you had to care about Nightmare and you had to track some Nightmare dice, that was a big deal. You know, it made Unleashing a lot more interesting. I had a player come and sit in on a game in my Chronicle. She was just going to be there for one game, and so I went, okay, here, have an NPC. Um, We'll do a couple quick things so you know what you can spend, and I'm going to roll a D10 to see where you are on your nightmare cycle, because nightmare always careens towards max. I rolled an eight. Her unleashing dynamics were nuts, but that's how the system is designed to play. And so if you want those dynamics to show up in the one shot, you really kind of need to do some of those things to make them matter. Right, we've been using a hybrid, I suppose is the word, system from before C20 came out, that is more like C20 than is like second, I feel, but maybe not, where you add nightmare dice to everything you do with magic, and if they trigger on a botch or a critical success, then regardless of what you were trying to do, it goes out of control, and that nightmare point goes away, but it still goes out of control in some way, and that's introduced the um, the potential for the game to have these moments of 
okay, I really need this thing to happen. And I think it's worth putting my dirty laundry out there for a second, even if that doesn't happen. So I'm going to try it. And we've got a couple of games now that kind of careened off into Silent Hill. Like, we need to deal with some personal problems for this character now because they just triggered six nightmare dice all at once kind of a thing. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> and those have been really fun. They are, it, it's a really, it, I didn't design it that way, but it turned into a really fun way to take what's supposed to be kind of a punitive system and keep it as kind of a punishment, but at the same time, make it all about character development and pushing along individual side plots, which takes a lot of work, but oh my god, it's fun. I had a much lesser version of that happen at the last Gen Con game I ran, and I used... I don't want to say it's the same system Simon used because I mostly ad hoc it, but it's the idea behind the system Simon uses, which is based kind of loosely off a nightmare dynamic in second edition, where you have the nightmare dice and they get added to your magic, or specifically they replace dice in your magic. So if you have, you know, a dice pool for your cantrip of six and you have three nightmare, three of those dice become nightmare dice. And if you roll a one on any of those, the nightmare goes away. Cool, you have less nightmare, but something happens. Didn't love the examples in second edition, to be honest. They were kind of weird and incidental. So I had little things happen, little bits of paranoia, little incursions of of hallucination. And they were meant to be pretty minor. But I had one red cap in my game that just kept rolling ones. But he was also rolling tens, and he was unleashing, and he was doing all of these things that produced Nightmare and then burning it all off in one session. I think he burned through, like, five Nightmare in one session. You know, and for a one-shot, this is a new character. This isn't someone with seven or eight Nightmare. He had three or four in his pool to start the night out. And by the end, the, like, layers of paranoia... And I made every little delusion that he had, and they were little initially, and it was just supposed to be something fun for him to roleplay. But by the end of the night, they had like three or four rolls had layered on top of each other before the last one had worn off. He had so much fun with it. It was so entertaining. It was meant to be punitive, but he just leaned into it and was a paranoid mess he was doing things that were terrible for the entire group but no one cared everyone laughed through it because it was really funny you know set in 1925 chicago and he was a north side ganger and by the end of the night he was convinced his entire gang had backstabbed him and the chicago outfit was coming for him as well and he was going to do anything he could to stop all of them and none of that was real and it was really kind of hilarious Right, we've had a couple of the little ones go off for one of my players whose character, she hates doctors with a mild phobia. And at one point they were supposed to be running away from, it's not, it wasn't really an explosion, but the easiest way to explain it was they were running away from an explosion kind of a thing. And she was going to turn herself into an animal so she'd get away faster. And she did, but she did it with, a couple of nightmare dice going off. So she had this hallucination about being in 
a hospital and the doctor's talking about her as if she was strapped down to a table kind of a thing. While in the real world, I think she turned into a bird or something and then just immediately fell over legs up and so we had to go back and pick her up. Which isn't the worst thing that could happen to somebody. But at the same time, it was really awkward for the game. The thing that I think is really interesting about treating Nightmare this way, and I think it's really necessary for one shot because with the way that the Bedlam system is designed around, you have to get 10 Nightmare to get a Bedlam adjustment, and then eh, it's on the last willpower you're going to spend. Nobody's burning down their willpower that quickly in Changeling anyway. You know, Bedlam adjustments don't really become dangerous until you have two or three of them, and you can get rid of them by sacrificing Epiphanies. It's a pretty manageable system. Like, to get into the point where Bedlam matters in the book system, it needs to be a long chronicle, and you need to be a little negligent. Or have a storyteller who is being very intentionally stingy with holdings and epiphanies to pump the system up. Having Nightmare work this way is, one, a lot more dynamic, and it really lends itself to the style of roleplay where you care more about having narrative influence then you care about your character, quote-unquote, winning. I mean, nobody likes a story about a character that never experiences any struggle or strife or has any flaws. Like, if that show came on Netflix, none of us would watch it. And the pitch for the storyteller system has always been, we're collaborative storytellers. And I found when I have players that want to, they are storyteller system players, they love this stuff. When I have players who are like, D&D players and they want to win, then it becomes a problem. But especially, you know, if you set that expectation and tell them, look, you're telling the story of your character, you're not your character, and you're not leveling to get points to win, man, having Nightmare is awesome. It's so much fun. Technically, it's a penalization, but... It's a penalization that puts the spotlight on your character. Yeah, it really does, which is satisfying. The other thing we should talk about with regard to one-shots specifically is what kind of availability of power are you looking at? Even if you're giving your players a lot of XP to make their characters with and therefore expecting a high-level game, how available is Glamour? That turns into a huge thing, and to a lesser extent, how available is Willpower and how much does ambient banality really matter? And how many people are going to be running around, maybe not looking to trigger, but they're going to trigger your PCs? All of these things can change the mood of the game. If you are constantly afraid of something triggering you, that's a little bit different from a game where triggers are rare, but still catastrophic. And the other thing that I think C20 opens the door to, we've talked about kind of changing how much XP you make available and, okay, then I could buy more glamour and, you know, manipulating the nightmare levels. Your level of banality no longer has a relationship with your seeming. All of the seemings start with the same banality. You can have the mentality of a child and still be banal, and anyone who's lived through elementary school has met those kids. Or you can be, 
you know, the completely low banality, probably slight bedlam addled grump who is the next door neighbor in the little prince movie. You know, those are both very viable characters now. But if you're going to do a one shot and you're going to kick up the power, then it's also worth kicking up the banality and saying, okay, you're all getting 100 experience, but every glamour you purchase, you're going to have to take another banality as well. Or I'm going to give out, I have banality cards. And the cards have between two and, you know, four on them, or maybe one and four. And whatever you draw, that's the extra banality you take over your starting character. And then everybody roll a d10 to see how much temporary banality you have. And so it's more like capturing a moment in time from a long-form chronicle, from characters that have the ravages of dealing with the world in that moment, as opposed to that kind of default starting point that the character generation system puts you at. I still think the bana- the way the banality systems work in C20, if left unmodified, they're not super intimidating, but doing that stuff will get you a lot closer to having banality play a part in your one-shot game. The last thing I can think of to consider for one-shot games is determining whether your game's going to take place primarily or exclusively in the autumn world or the dreaming, or even if it is in the autumn world, if it's primarily chimerical, determines a lot of the the feel and the availability of power for your characters, because things that happen in the dreaming are primarily, maybe exclusively, without glamour cost, and things that happen in the autumn world are primarily, or maybe even exclusively, with glamour cost. And those things contribute to different feels. Yeah, it also very much controls the scale and scope of what you can do. Um, It's worth noting in C20, and this is one of the rules in C20 that made me scratch my head a lot, um, cantrips don't all become free until you get to the far dreaming, even though the definition of what weird is doesn't apply even in the near dreaming. So that's a little weird. (laughs) Um... That pun was not intended, and I apologize to everyone. But it's, if you're going to be in the dreaming, especially for a one-shot game, if you're deciding to do that, then you're already kind of deciding on a certain scale. And it's better, in my opinion, to be, well, there's no autumn world here, so everything is chimerical, because that is the truth. I think that helps also control that moment where it's like, I have no glamour left, what am I doing? Whereas a one-shot game in the autumn world, resources really maybe should be a dynamic. And especially if you want a one-shot that feels dark and claustrophobic and leans into the horror and you want to make banality matter, the very first Changeling one-shot I ever ran in high school was a bunch of Changelings that were asked to save a newly crystallized she and it was a big deal and i had some story about how she had gone through chrysalis because we didn't have autumn she back then but the kid had immediately been picked up and taken to a mental hospital because his parents freaked out and this group of basically starting character changelings were being asked to you know 
go rescue him from the most terrifying setting imaginable. And banality was a problem, and the difficulty to do cantrips was very high, and it made the game feel pretty, pretty intensive. It also immediately puts you in a place where you're probably paying for all your cantrips. And how much glamour do you really have going into that quest? So thinking about resources a little more explicitly is, is definitely beneficial. Janie, dim the cameras on five, then hit the spots, ready on the pinball. Donald crouched down and covered his eyes. Sam did the same, still wondering what this pinball could be. An area of effect weapon? Some kind of spell? Kevin had told him how all the iron around Fairgrove could disrupt any magic the elves used. The grounds lit up in brilliant lights as hundreds of halogens sprang to life. Sam squinted against the glare and then gasped as he saw what they faced. O oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Caught in the daylight brilliance were creatures out of his nightmares and old stories. Although under that much candle power, they looked only like so many special effects puppets, all except their leader. That was unmistakably and horrifyingly real. Riding a creature that might once have been a horse, but now was tattered hide stretched over bone, a fang-filled mouth and evil glint of fire eyes. The leader's ragged clothing whipped in a wind that seemed to blow from Sam's own soul, and he knew the banshee for what it was. Around it were rank upon rank of gray and green-skinned goblins, wicked weapons drawn, and great shambling trolls with glistening knobby skin. Virtually all of them were cringing and clutching at their eyes. Behind them in a second rank were... she. Tall, silver-haired, dusky-eyed, identical to the fair grove she and yet as different as a surgeon's scalpel and an assassin's dagger. Unseelie she. The first, besides Vidaldu, that Sam had seen. They carried some sort of weaponry that looked vaguely gun-shaped, all but four of the tallest. The quartet raised their arms and gestured, gathering sickly green light around their hands, and Sam knew the attack had begun. Come on, you bastards, Donald muttered. A little closer, just a little closer. They didn't immediately oblige him. Instead, some of the skinnier goblins peered, squinting through the halogen glare, and the unseelie she raised crossbows. They looked odd. When they fired them into the trees, where the hidden humans with firearms were waiting, Sam realized why. Fairgrove wasn't the only group to have pirated technology. Although this was a simpler level of tech, it was no less deadly. The unseelie she had armed themselves with compound crossbows. The bolts glowed with the same evil green as the mages were gathering about their hands. Shit! Donald spat. Elf shot. Those pricks brought elf shot. From the sudden cries of pain in the trees, those bolts had found marks among the humans. Some shots rang out from the trees in answer, but the unseelie mages cast a curtain of deflecting energy across their front ranks, and four boggle mages appeared from the woods. That'll be their attackers. Encouraged by their success, the enemy leader gestured his troops to move forward under the crossbowmen's covering fire. The boggle mages gestured, as if to throw something. Kevin's voice came clearly and calmly through the headphones. Janie, pinball, now. Then Sam realized why the elven leader had been so smug. 
The fence post he'd leaned on earlier that day, and every other fence post, cracked open along its top and revealed a dark metal bar, trailing shreds of silk cloth as they rose. The ground sprinklers popped up from the ground, refracting the artificial daylight in huge rainbows. The beautiful, tricky bastards. They built silk-wrapped iron bars into these fence posts. Sam's mind swam with amazement. They ran lines to the posts when the sprinklers were installed, and it only takes turning one valve to raise the bars when you activate the sprinklers. The bars themselves warped the paths of both the magical energy and the enchanted elf shot. And that was why it was called Pinball, he realized, as he watched the spell bolts the Boggles had unleashed tear through their own ranks like the silver balls in the arcade game until they ran out of targets to burn. And now, the odds looked to be even. Tech on the Fairgrove side, numbers and bloodthirstiness on the Unseelie side. Alright, so those were some of our thoughts on running one-shot games and some of the needs of storytelling and system finagling for those sorts of games. Hopefully you found some useful tidbits of information in our rambling, and we'll catch you next time when we discuss running longer chronicles. This has been Walking Away from Arcadia. Readings from this conversation were from Through the Mist Darkly by Simon Eichhörnchen and Born to Run by Mercedes Lackey. The music from this episode was LSD by Montplaisir.